Welcome to This Week in Local, a Locology podcast featuring lively conversations about the local digital ecosystem, hosted by Locology analysts Mike Bolin and Charles Lachlan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Week in Local. I'm Locology analyst Charles Lachlan, and I'm here with my colleague Mike Bolin. Mike. Hi, Charlie. Good to see you again, even though yes. we see each other all the time. Uh, so we're here to talk about the big stories we're covering for Locology Insider, which is Locology's online publication. And Mike, uh, this week you wrote something about Google Lens. Could you tell us a little bit about that and why it's important to Locology's audience? Yeah, so this falls into the category of visual search. And it's an area that I've been you know, sort of tracking for the last few years and, and very bullish on, even though it's sort of been slow to gain consumer traction. And before I launch into that, a quick definition. So the term visual search actually has two definitions. Some people use that term when they're talking about simply using a lot of images in your SEO strategy so that you show up in Google Images. It's sort of a backdoor way to get high search rankings through Google Images. That's not what I'm talking about here when I say visual search. The other definition is using your smartphone, using your smartphone's camera to essentially identify things. So Google has a tool called Google Lens. Pinterest has Pinterest Lens. Snap has Snap Scan. They all have sort of varying use cases, but they all do one thing in common, which is to use computer vision and AI to essentially identify real world objects. So I can point it at a tree and say, you know, what kind of tree is that? What kind of dog is that? And, and, you know, Google is starting with some of those sort of general interest type searches, but really the holy grail is to get towards more monetizable search and shopping. So what's that jacket I saw on the street and you can buy it on the spot. So it essentially just sort of turns your phone into this like visual intelligence layer for the world. And I've been very bullish on this because it sort of marks, checks all the boxes of killer apps, right? It's practical. It has a wow factor. It has a frequency of use. It has a utility, sort of just like search. You know, search is something, it's an all day use case. We're always using it. Visual search, will be sort of a component of that. It won't take over search, but it'll, you know, for some things, it's more intuitive. There's also a great local angle, pointed at a coffee shop, pointed at a storefront and be able to find out the hours of operation, stuff like that. So for all these reasons, I've been so bullish on it, but it just hasn't really caught on uh, as much as I predicted. And, and my theory there is it's sort of the curse of new technologies where it's sort of such a departure and such a sort of disruption that it sort of deviates from consumers, you know, well-worn habits. It, it's it's you know it's it's a departure. Um, so based on all of that, um, companies like Google, companies like Snap, again Pinterest, these companies doing it have sort of developed these sort of uh, a certain amount of traction within their user bases. Um, you know, the Snapchat user base, for example, is very camera forward, so they haven't had any trouble. But for a general audience. One thing that Google has had trouble doing is just sort of like incubating it, introducing it to people, gaining traction. They're keen on this because it helps sort of future-proof their search model with a more visual front end. All the same reasons they're into visual, or sorry, voice search. It's all about different search inputs. It increases their query volume. So that all leads to this week's news, which is they really want to amplify um, that exposure um, and, and incubate. I like to think of it as incubating. They're giving it training wheels by making Google Lens just more findable. So they essentially, what they did this week or, or just recently was they they gave it a lot of exposure by giving it you know what 
any product would love, which is to plant it on the web's most travel webpage, the Google homepage now has the little Google Lens logo. Like, you know, when you go to the homepage, usually you see that little microphone for Google Voice to do a voice query. Now, right next to that is a little camera icon that signifies Google Lens. So essentially what that does, the, the really the main point of the story is that they want to expose and incubate this new sort of feature they want to get going by just like giving it, planting it in the world's most traveled webpage. Um, now, one final point there is that we're talking about desktop here. And the use case on desktop isn't the same as what I described earlier, which is you got your smartphone, you're pointing it at things in the real world. On the desktop, obviously, you don't have a rear-facing camera. So what you do is you upload an image or you provide a link for an image, and it essentially does a reverse image search. But why this is still important for the overall traction of Google Lens is it gets people used to that button. What is that button? It gets them accustomed to it. Then when they're on their mobile device, Google is hoping it'll accelerate that traction for that. Again, very sort of compelling and wow factor and utility use case of just identifying things visually throughout the world rather than typing in in query. So that's sort of what they did. And we're going to continue watching, you know, where that goes, if it able, if it is able to indeed accelerate the, the traction. I have a few questions about this. I am not much for using this sort of thing um, on mm -hmm. the real world that, that so I'm not your I'm not your uh, test case by any stretch of the imagination. But what I'm curious about is where's the intersection between wearables and the uh, smartphone? Yeah, that, that's actually a key point too. One of the other reasons why it hasn't caught on is that it's, though it's compelling, you know, you point your phone at things, what's that? What kind of tree? What kind of dog? Who makes yeah. that jean jacket? Um, it's still a little bit awkward from a form factor perspective to be sort of holding up your phone. There's mm -hmm. privacy things. People are skittish about like, you know, someone pointing your phone, their phone at you in that sort of style discovery use case. I could and see an just, intersection with dating apps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there probably is a good intersection there. Yeah. So anyway, it's that form factor where the actual true value proposition of this technology will really kick in and maybe find that traction that I've been sort of predicting once we have more ubiquitous wearables like smart glasses, where it's just a more subtle line of sight identification or, or sort of intelligence layer for the world that does it in an ambient way without you having to hold up your phone. Rather, it's more automatic through glasses. Now, I also want to be clear that my my view of smart glasses and AR glasses, I've been you know tracking this closely, still years away for, for technological reasons to get them sleek enough where people are going to want to wear them and also cultural reasons. We all remember the Google Glass debacle. It's, it's culturally, it's going to take years. I think we're talking like 2030s, not like next year before that's something that's culturally accepted and, and technologically sleek enough where people will put them on their faces. But that's the holy grail where things like visual search and identifying things in the real world could really start to gel. So am I misinterpreting it that Google with lens and and there's been other examples. I know Meta's all in with the Oculus, which is a different mm -hmm. set of circumstances, I guess, but were they overestimating the adoption of wearables in that sense, or were they trying to push that culture change and realizing it was harder than they thought or what happened there? Why did that just flop the way it did? It, it's a classic Silicon Valley effect. I think, I think that's the term for it. At least that's what I call it. it where be. like yeah. product designers and analysts like us and us that sort of in the Silicon Valley world mm -hmm. tend to 
underestimate the adoption impediments, culturally speaking. Um, so, you know, it's something that excites us, but will average consumers do it? I like to call it the grandmother test. Like, will my grandmother use this? Mm -hmm. It's the ultimate litmus test on if something sort of mainstream friendly. And I think that with these technologies we're talking about, it's, you know, engineers, product people that are getting really excited about it, uh, but failing to, you know, see that maybe average folks aren't. And another okay. thing, I'll say one more thing there too. When we're talking about different types of technology, there, there's an even greater barrier to adoption, which is things you put on your face. People are vain, right? We're talking about things yeah. that you put on your face. And yeah. Even other wearables like watch and, and other things, like it's we're talking about on your face, not an app you put on your phone. Uh, so I think that's just an additional layer of adoption impediments that I think maybe they underestimated. Is there a Google versus Apple component to this conversation? I think so, and Meta, all, all three of them. So the rumor is that Apple is going to come out with their kind of smart glasses in the next few years. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes sense because it, it really flows right into their overall wearable strategy, which is sort of like the golden goose in in, um, in Cupertino, because as global smartphone penetration sort of decelerates and it becomes saturated, not just for Apple, but for everyone, the iPhone is their cash cow and that has revenue um, deceleration. So wearables, meantime, are experiencing very fast growth and sort of counterbalancing those losses they're seeing on the iPhone side. So like they're all in on wearables and this flows right into that wearable strategy where it's that classic Apple ecosystem play where it's like, you know, own all the devices and the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You got your AirPods, you got your glasses, you got your watch. They all work in tandem for biometrics and other things. So that's my theory on what they're going to do. And what, what, what I'm getting at here, I guess, is to get to your question of if anyone can sort of have that halo effect to popularize a new technology that was previously in this geeky territory and bringing it to the masses. Apple has proven to do that time and time again, iPad, iPhone, et cetera. Not necessarily new technologies, but they made them mainstream friendly. So the whole AR glasses world is sort of waiting with bated breath for what Apple does there because it could really make or break you know, the, the, the industry as a whole. So if we're making a bet, we're going to bet on Apple in this. I, I'd realm. say so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Charlie, let's let's pause there and move on to uh, what you're looking at, and and you in particular, one of the beats you cover is is fintech, and and as a subset of that, BNPL. Um, and I think with the holidays approaching, there's a lot of questions on this rise of BNPL plus macro factors like the economy. What what are you foreseeing for like BNPL in the holiday season? Yeah, I'll take a quick minor step back. I think everyone when when you say BNPL, most people know that we're talking about buy now. Pay later, which is a subset of fintech, which has been through some things. Um, it's still enormously popular. It's an extremely popular method of payment. And just for those who, that person in the cave out there who doesn't know what it is, essentially it's if you mostly online, but increasingly in store. Uh, if you want to make a purchase, and instead of paying for it all on your revolving credit card at once, and or all on your debit card in cash at once, or in cash, actual cash at once, you do a, usually like a pay in four, where you put 25% down right away and you make three installments going forward, either interest-free or very, very low interest, depends on which partner is fulfilling the BNPL payment, a firm or Afterpay, which is owned by Square or Klarna or whatever, some charge interest, some only charge late fees if you miss a payment. And actually, the late fees are the larger source of controversy, I think. And this is a very controversial payment methodology. The reason it's controversial, I think, largely is because 
it has allowed a lot of Gen Z consumers to buy very nice articles of clothing or uh, pieces of electronics or jewelry or whatever um, and take possession immediately of, from, and then not have to pay for them all right away. And it really is another form of debt. And it has led to higher default rates uh, among BMPL purchases. It's led to a lot of regulatory pushback, particularly overseas Australia, where it just sort of ground zero for BMPL. Afterpay was founded by Nick Molnar, who's from Melbourne. Uh, Zipco, big BNPL company, is based in Australia. So it's kind of the uh, home country of buy now, pay later. Regulators there have been coming very hard at BNPL. Uh, why isn't there, you know, why aren't there more credit checks? You know, why aren't there more uh, penalties for, you know, basically driving up this, you know, consumer, bad consumer habits among younger consumers, you know, developing sort of higher tolerance for debt, taking on more debt than they should, all those sort of negative things we associate with uh, poor consumer credit practices. And BNPL is starting to wear that mantle of financial irresponsibility, even though it came into the world, presenting itself as a financially responsible way to buy higher ticket items. Okay. So that's kind of the overview of what's going on with BNPL. And we're starting to see some of these chickens coming home to roost. For example, Klarna, a Swedish company, I forgot the exact numbers. It had a massive valuation, many, many billions of dollars. It lost, I think, 60% or more of its valuation, basically as sort of the tech uh, reckoning took place over the last several months where, you know, it would shift from the buy it all, the shift from buy it all, uh, grow at all costs to make some money for God's sake, uh, that sort of seemed to happen overnight. That has hit BNPL very hard. And I think the valuations uh, have gone down as a result. And now we're even seeing layoffs happen. Klarna has laid off people, a company called Zilch based in the UK uh, has announced layoffs, which is something I wrote about a few days ago. So we're starting to see those chickens starting to come home to roost in BNPL. Yeah, interesting. And so I'm I'm wondering about the timing. So I wrote an article the other day mm -hmm. about the fact that it was sort of a surprise that looking back on Cyber Week, which of course starts with Black Friday, moves to Cyber Monday, the numbers are actually up from last yeah. year, year over year. The numbers are up, but um, but if you if you kind of dive down a little deeper, the numbers are up during that period. But like early November, the first three weeks of November, they were way down. So consumer spending is happening, but consumers due to macroeconomic pressures are shopping on the, they're, they're more price sensitive and they're deal seeking. Now, yeah. does that same sort of profile and macroeconomic factor drive people, do you believe, and maybe we may see it over the next month in the holiday season towards BNPL? And if so, is that exacerbating some of those bad habits you mentioned like when we look back at the last big financial crisis it was you know some of those bad credit types of behaviors that led us into that rut it's like is that right. is it that all over again well i don't know if bnpl is going to you know uh, be the tip of the spear for a financial international financial right. crisis but i do think inflation is a uh tailwind for bnpl in a, in a way because huh. it, when you make a purchase if, if you're afraid of the price of something going up but you can't afford to pay for it in full right away. BNPL is not huh. a bad option for you because yeah. that price is locked in. Now, that's an interesting pivot point to something that's another thing I've been covering that is happening is sort of a reaction to BNPL. Uh, so BNPL, just a little context, BNPL has historically been seen as 
kind of like, you know, layaway, right? It, yeah. It, it kind of what your depression era grandparents would do to buy a couch during the depression. They would go to the furniture store and make a deposit and they'd come back every week and pay a little bit of money. And eventually they've paid off that couch and then they can take the couch home. Okay. Yeah, they, they didn't get it while it was on layaway. No. Is that the difference here? Like, exactly. you have Well, with it. BNPL, you take possession immediately and then you yeah. pay for it later. Now, something has emerged called Save Now, Buy Later, which actually mirrors layaway much more closely huh. because you take possession of the goods at the end of the line when you finished making the payment. It's positioned as a savings program tied to a purchase, right? So there's a company called Accrue Savings. I believe the founder is, if I get his name wrong, I apologize to him, Michael Hirschfeld. He actually was a sales exec at WeWork, worked for Adam Newman. Huh. I'm not sure what happened in between that debacle and him founding this company, which seems to be really doubling down on and sort of let's look at BNPL and let's call it out for what it is. It's 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 uh, consumer debt disguised as financial responsibility. What we're offering is true financial responsibility, which is yeah. I'm going to do true lay by in a digital format. And then at the end, I'll take the couch home when I've paid for it uh, through digital and through online payment installments. Um, this company, I, you know, I'm not sure what their numbers are in terms of how fast they're growing or how much, uh, uptake they're getting. But if you look around the world, there's other examples of companies forming new fintechs forming over the past year or so. There's one in, in uh, South Africa called layup. Uh, interestingly enough, I think there's one in e there's, there's scattered. India has a bunch of them, big consumer culture in India. Uh, so this is kind of a global phenomenon. BNPL is very much a global phenomenon. And SNBL, which is the sort of reaction, your you know, reaction to BNPL, kind of here's true financial responsibility, is emerging globally as well. So that's mm -hmm. kind of interesting. And I'm not sure if it's going to take off the same as BNPL because BNPL offers what SNBL does not offer, which is immediate gratification. And we know how the brain works with the release of endorphins from an immediate. Graphic. I don't think there right. are any endorphins associated with SNBL and yeah. we're all in it for the endorphins. Right. So now, uh, with BNPL, I've always wondered this. It almost seems too good to be true from a business model perspective. Like they must have some pretty strong sort of actuarial work going to basically yeah. make sure at scale that they're not losing money and that they're not defaulting to a to a rate that just or, or is that happening and those are the chickens coming home to roost now because the model was sort of flawed to begin with or is it somewhere in the middle these platforms will tell you that their predictive modeling is state of the art right yeah um but but the fact that regulators are pushing them hard to do more credit checks suggests that they may there's an underlying problem there somewhere and now can can anyone do it like without having any sort of background check whatsoever is that the idea um you there's an approval process but it's digital and it's a matter of minutes then you know it's not like we'll get back to you tomorrow okay. it's not like applying yeah. for a loan right it's it's more of a but i don't think it's quite a credit check and, and even it's even difficult it, or it has been up until recently difficult to tell if somebody has like five bnpl accounts you know yeah. Before they're approved for six, number six. Um, so I, I think that that's an underlying problem. I think the lack of of interoperability among these platforms, that's from my understanding is something that's being worked on so that yeah. they can sort of through, I assume it's done through APIs that they can tell, uh, okay, Bob wants to buy this couch, but Bob has six other BNPL accounts for articles of clothing or jewelry bought for his girlfriend or <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. And he's in default on two of them. 
Yeah. Until until now, that until that system isn't happening in real time, and I think it's been, I, I I may be out over my skis saying this, but I think it's being worked on. Uh, then I think BNPL has a big uh, gap. And so that's one thing. And I think the other issue is as funds, as interest rates are rising, the cost of funds goes up. And yeah. I think it becomes harder for them to make money. They're generally not profitable businesses. Mm -hmm. So know? what's the SMB angle here? Are all those kinks being worked out among major brands, which are usually the first adopters? And do you believe it's going to sort of trickle it, down? It's, it's a big digital brand play initially. Yeah. Um, I think eventually if this thing survives, and I think consumer I don't think it's become any less popular with consumers. I don't see much evidence that it has. Yeah. Um, if anything, it's growing in popularity with consumers because it is a, you know, if you've got 50 bucks and you want to buy something that's 200 bucks and you want it now and you yeah. don't want to add to your credit limit, you know, or you don't want to go over your credit limit or whatever, or you you're maxed out on your credit card or whatever it is, but you have $50, you can make that $200 purchase today. That's not a demand constrained uh, yeah. value proposition, you know, demand constraining value yeah. proposition. So I think if anything, it's beginning to become more popular. Yeah. Um, it seems like the issues are on the supply side. The lack of demand is not the issue here. Right. right. I think yeah. our consumer is going to get so stra strained from this that they're going to stop making purchases using BNPO. I yeah. think that's, you know, that could happen. You know, eventually if you're in enough stress, you stop spending money. <laughs> You know, sooner or later, when you have none, you stop using it. Stop mm -hmm. using what you don't have. Uh, I don't think we're there yet, but I think that that you know, I think the fact that there's so many BNPL players that some of them are getting under stress. There's been some acquisitions and some roll-ups in the space. Uh, I think the cracks are beginning to show in terms of the business on the business model side uh, and on the competitive side, and starting on the regulatory side. I think the consumer piece is hanging in the balance there. Makes sense. Okay. Okay, Mike. I think that's been a lot of fun today. I think we can end it there for this week in local. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Locology's This Week in Local with Mike Boland and Charles Lachlan. Be sure to subscribe for more.